I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving. The one who teaches and is teaching, the one who exhorts and is exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let's ask God's blessing upon the reading and preaching of his word. Father in heaven, we do ask that you would speak and that we would hear, and that you would speak in both of these, the reading of your word, which has already been done, and the preaching of your word. May these be your words, for we know that your words are the words of life. Give us the ears to hear, minds to understand, hearts to believe. We know all of these are your gifts and your work. And so we ask yet again for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. So yesterday I had the big Christmas fight. The fight that many, I guess, young uh, fathers or mothers have as they go to build the presents. In this case, it was the basketball goal that's been on the front porch that needed to be built for far longer than Christmas. Trying to assemble the basketball goal and get it into the concrete and into the ground and have it assembled correctly so that it works the way that it's supposed to work, it should not be that difficult. In fact, actually, yesterday I had just a little bit of time. I was going to go out and get one little step done so the concrete could set uh, before the last family gathering of the holiday season. And seven hours later, as I walked inside, having pondered my existence and all of the meaning of life, (laughs) I realized I had a perfect sermon illustration. See, the problem was not that there was actually that much to do. The problem was that I would do it and then have to undo it and then have to redo it and then potentially undo it and redo it again. The design on this particular goal is spectacularly counterintuitive. Think Ikea and turn it opposite. And that's what I had yesterday afternoon. It was, I would be lying if I said it was joy, delight. It was mystifying and frustrating the whole time sitting there thinking, who designed this and how did they think this was a good idea? Reading the directions, all three sets, which contradicted each other and had the steps out of order in different sets of directions. I mean, this is really genuinely a bad experience. And to sit there and think, I mean, I I have a concept of what the end thing is supposed to be. Like, I have a concept that there's a pole in the ground 
And there's some sort of kind of mechanism to raise and lower a backboard and a goal. I, I have a concept in my brain. But what it really looks like and what the designer intended may not be anywhere in the same conversation. And certainly the way that the designer intended for me to get from here to there is very different from the route that I'm going. Or at least according to some of the directions, but not all of them. And too often, I think that's maybe sometimes how we think about the Christian life as well. We know that we're saints. For those of us that have been converted, we're Christians. We know that we're Christians. And we have some sort of kind of rough idea of what Christianity looks like. I mean, I know there's a pole in the ground. I know there's a backboard. I know there's a hoop. It's supposed to go up and down. I have a rough idea. But the specifics, sometimes we get a little fuzzy on, don't we? And then even more so if you have to have a conversation about how to get from here to there. How do I make it from where I am now to where I'm going to end up? What does that look like? I'll give you a fancy term for it. That's called God's will. And if you ask your average Christian about the will of God, it, it ends up being this thing of just total mystery. We oftentimes think of the Lord far more often like a genie. You know, you, you rub the, the lamp and the genie comes out and you're always kind of afraid of what you're going to ask for because you never know what you're going to get. I want a thousand bucks and you have a thousand deer and you hate your life. We don't know because we're always sometimes thinking about the will of God in this mysterious fashion and we feel like me trying to build a basketball goal saying, I, I have a concept of where I'm headed, but how to get there is just baffling. Romans chapter 12, the turning point here of the book, is designed to show the people of God, look, this is the path to get from A to F. This is the way that you make it B, C, D, E. This is the path that you are supposed to travel. The book, it, it turns, everything changes in chapter 12 because the previous 11 chapters, Paul has been explaining something to the Romans. He's headed there for a visit and this is his resume. My goodness, what a resume. I mean, one of the finest articulations of Christian doctrine anywhere, anytime, anyplace. A magnificent letter. He's explaining this is what Christianity is. So when I get to Rome, you really should stop talking and listen to me. It's much kinder than that. And so he walks them through chapter 1 saying, look, all, all of us have some sort of knowledge of God. There is no innocent person. Everyone knows no matter where you are, who you are, where you come from, what language you speak, whether you've ever even heard the name of Jesus or about the Bible, you look at creation and you know there's a God. And then chapters 2, 3, 4, 5, he takes the argument and then begins to apply it. Well, if you know there is a God... Anytime you don't worship him or you reject him or you disobey him, it's called sin. And the problem is that everybody sins. There's no way around that. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned in Adam. When President Adam declared war against God, all people declared war with him. So we have both problems. The president has just declared war against God, and I further contributed to that war. I can't get around either aspect of sin, original sin, war against uh, God, or my own specific corruption, my actions. 
And he builds to explain that, look, the, the only thing that we get because of this is death. It's the natural consequence of knowing there is a God, of rejecting him, of disobeying him, as which all people do. The natural consequence is sin, of sin is death, excuse me, death for everyone, physical, spiritual, the worst of the worst. And in the midst of that dark, dark situation, he begins to explain, this is why Jesus is so important. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were hopeless, having no chance to redeem ourselves, Christ Jesus stepped inside time and space. The second person of the Trinity put on humanity. He put on time. He never had that before. He put on time so that he could redeem a people. This redemption is given freely. It's given as grace that is purchased by Christ and given freely to the people of God. What do you have to do to earn it? Well, you can't. It's a free gift. All you do is receive it in the work of the Holy Spirit, and it's yours. And in fact, actually, it's so spectacular, Romans 8, nothing can separate you from that love that is found in Christ Jesus. There's nothing inside of creation that once you belong to Him that can pry you apart. Even including you. You can't stop your own salvation because Jesus is bigger than even you. I know sometimes we don't believe that, but it is the truth. So chapters 1 through 11 lay out this spectacular understanding of what salvation is. That I had no hope and Christ Jesus became my hope and now I have eternal hope in Christ. So what do I do? How do I get from A to Z? How do I follow the steps to build the basketball goal? How do I live in light of that? Chapter 12 begins with the therefore, classic Pauline. He, Pauline writing, he, all of his writings gives the first half of the book is the, uh, the, the indicative that this is the truth. And then the latter part is the imperative, the how then should I live? What should I do? Follows the pattern always. And the first thing that we're going to see as we look at this section of the scriptures is that uh, Christian service is the outworking of salvation and not vice versa. This is important foundation for kind of figuring out how we're going to live it all is to understand that Christian service is the consequence of salvation. It's the outworking. It's the afterward. It's the second part of salvation and not the first. By this, we look at and see, okay, God has saved us. That's chapters 1 through 11. That Jesus redeems for himself a people, and then after redemption, we live in good works. I appeal to you, brothers, therefore, by the mercies of God, I, I plead with you in light of the salvation that you already know about, in light of the fact that King Jesus lived and died and was raised and ascended for you, in light of the fact that that is given to you freely, in light of the fact that he gives the spirit so that you may be transformed by no work of your own, in light of all of that, now let's talk about how you're supposed to live. 
By the mercies of God, in view of God's mercies, I urge you, therefore, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. In light of the salvation that God has given, in light of the work of Christ, now go be a living sacrifice. Which to a Jew in Rome, or I guess a Gentile even, would have read that term. And if they didn't memorize the scripture when they were, you know, seven years old like I did, uh, they would be baffled by that term. A living sacrifice? That's, that's a really goofy term because sacrifice by definition means dead. If it's an animal, how do you sacrifice the animal? You kill it. <laughs> if it is a drink, how do you sacrifice the drink? You pour it out. If it's a food offering, how do you do the food offering? Well, you eat it. It, it goes away. It ends. It dies. It, it stops existing. It's the end of the thing. We, however, are called to be living sacrifices. This amazing contradiction of life and death simultaneously. It gives us kind of our, our first clue Christian service is the outworking of salvation, not the vice versa, because it is the death of self and the life of Christ. We're presenting our bodies as living sacrifices, not that you join the church and as part of church membership, we like give you some sort of weird poison that slowly kills you day by day, you know, hour by hour. That'd be really weird. Your Christian service is that you actually physically die. No, instead, you become your own executioner. Whereby you, the Puritans use the word mortify the deeds of the flesh. It, it means to murder, to kill. Not yourself physically, but your sin nature. That you fight aggressively against the lingering corruption, the evil that is inside. Fight against the desires to do naughty things, which we all still have. And anyone who says differently is lying or giving in to their evil desires. And we as God's people, as we uh, thereby live out this transformation that God has given, we live as living sacrifices. Our, our lives are spent executing the sin that is within us. Our lives are spent trying to kill this evil. And what's the consequence? That we become holy and acceptable to God. We're pleasing offerings. And you can go back and think even to Genesis, Cain and Abel, right? One brings an offering that's pleasing to the Lord. One brings an offering that's not. Good deeds that flow from salvation. The killing of sin that flows from salvation. Well, you know what? That is an offering that pleases the Lord. Good deeds that are being attempted to precede salvation. Like we're going to try to earn a good standing with God. That's an abomination to him. He hates that. And this is spiritual worship. This is an interesting aspect that he brings in here at the end, is that our daily lives become acts of worship as we obey him and serve him. The next time that you're tempted to do something evil and you get that little kind of, you know, not voice in your head, but that little desire that you know, maybe I'll just do this thing that one time. You know, when you, when you say no to that, you're worshiping the Lord. It's a spiritual act of worship if you're a saint of God and you're doing it in the Holy Spirit. 
So first step on what life looks like as a Christian is to acknowledge that salvation results in transformation, that we're changed after we're saved. But then it gives us the next step in verse 2. The battle for Christian service, how do you get from here to there, is first and foremost a battle for the mind. All right, I appeal to you, brothers, therefore, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. Okay, so you're going to serve God, and you're going to do it by dying to yourself and living to Christ. Not entirely sure I know what that means, but okay. Well, then he gives us explanation. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is very interesting, the the transition that he makes. I I think it's really just intriguing. That he talks about spiritual acts of worship, he talks about being a living sacrifice, and the next thing that he thinks about is your mind existing in a fallen world. And he uses two kind of images, two ideas of one of conformity and one of transformation. One of conformity is that your mind, every time you're out there, your mind is being forced in some way to be reshaped in the image of the culture. I mean, yesterday I spent a long time, far longer than I needed to, messing with concrete. And I was supposed to be trying to concrete the inside of the pole itself. I don't know why they have us do that now, but okay, whatever they do. And in order to get the concrete into the pole, I made it extra soupy and then tried to pour it down, hoping that it would make it down to the bottom of the pole and then what? Take the shape of the pole. I don't, I don't want the concrete to take the shape of concrete. That's useless to me. I want the concrete to take the shape of the pole. I want it to be conformed into the image of the pole itself. The same way that I want the part in the ground to be conformed to the image of the hole, to the shape of the hole, so that I can fit the pole into the hole and the whole thing holds together. That sounds like a children's song that I suddenly just got slightly wrong. <laughs> But it's the same kind of concept that as we exist in the world today, there is a battle for our brains where it's trying to shape our thinking in a way that is against God and against His law. I mean, you don't probably think about it in these categories. But every time you turn on your television or you read a book or you find a rotten instruction manual, or you talk to your neighbors, or your unsafe family, there is a battle that is taking place for your brain. Will I take the shape of the container in which I live? I live in the world. I have to right now. I don't, I don't have the privilege yet of living in the new heavens and new earth yet. There'll be a day when I die, And I will get that privilege on that day. But until then, I live currently in a container that is not shaped correctly. It's shaped like the world. It's shaped like evil. And the temptation is always to have my mind shaped like the world. Because as my mind is shaped that way, my heart is shaped that way. And eventually my hands will behave that way. 
You never find people that are like, I just decided to wake up and do something really terrible today. I did some great evil. You can always look back and see, when did they make that decision? It happened months and months and months and months ago, and it just hadn't worked its way out yet. The contrast here is not to be conformed, to be shaped to the world's standards, to take the shape of the, the container with, in which we reside right now, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Interestingly, that verb is a passive verb. It's a really interesting grammatical construction. It is a passive imperative, which means that it is a command that you receive. Instead of being shaped by the world, you are commanded to receive transformation. And the transformation that you are commanded to receive takes place through the renewing of your mind. Since your mind begins to take the shape of heaven itself. And this is, I think, an intriguing contrast as we, as American Christians, there are many things that we like to do and many things that we don't like to do. And I would suggest thinking is one of the ones we don't really like to do. We don't really like to think as a country, do we? I mean, watch any political debate and see what level of nuance anybody in the room is able to maintain. Nuance requires tremendous amount of thinking. We just don't do that. We're not patient enough. We're not disciplined enough. We're just too lazy. We, just, we don't like to, to have our minds engaged. And here, interestingly, what is God saying? It's like an imperative command. Be transformed by the Holy Spirit. How? By your mind being changed. And I would suggest just as a uh, kind of a simple goal this year. Just pause and consider the diet that you're consuming, not physically, but mentally. What do you think about all the time? What do you spend your free moments just stirring around in your brain? You know, like when you're doing the the mindless tasks, like putting together a basketball goal, what, what are the things, the thoughts knocking around inside your skull? When you're driving home, you know, you're taking a shower, or you, you're doing you know, whatever. What's stirring around inside your, your noggin? Are you actively participating in this passive transformation? Or are you fighting it, kicking and screaming, because you're feeding, feeding, feeding the world within? And it's interesting what the consequence is. Look, as you're transformed and your mind is renewed by the work of the Spirit, what happens? That you're going to be able to discern God's will, what's good, pleasing, and perfect. That as your mind is changed through the ingesting of the Scriptures and learning to think more carefully and more clearly, the path of holiness becomes clearer. Finding answers to those difficult life questions becomes easier the more that you have your mind changed. And I I love the transition that he makes next. So what does that look like? I mean, classic practical pastoral question. Okay, so you've told me that uh, because I'm saved, that I need to, uh, after being saved, that I need to do Christian service. I get that. And then you've told me that the first step of Christian service is to fight for my brain. I got that. What's the next step of it? Well, verses 3 and following... It's that the Christian life is active obedience according to your gifts and according to the body's needs. 
it's going to look different in every situation. It's going to look different for every person. Why? Because God has made us all different. We're all different parts of the body. We're all in the same body, but we have different functions. And so your path of obedience is not going to be the same path of obedience for me. I'm called to be obedient by preaching. Right now, this moment, you're not. If you were trying to preach and I were trying to sit, both of us would be in error. Figuring out, okay, what's my specific calling? What's my specific task? And there's a good set of guidelines here at verse 3. Look, it's by the grace given to me that I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but regard yourself with sober judgment. That's the way I have it memorized in my head. Look at your own abilities and your own gifts and think about it realistically. Now, for some of us, that means you need to think a little bit more lowly of yourself. And some of us, you actually need to think more highly of yourself. Some of you, you have to remember God gave you the gift and you're not the greatest gift to the church. (laughs) Some of you do need to remember you actually are a great gift to the church. Some of you, you think too highly of yourself. You need to brought down four or five notches and say, you know what? You're not that big of a deal. It'll be okay, I promise. You're easily replaceable. It's like when a keyboard goes bad on a computer. Easy to fix. Others of you, though, you think too lowly of yourself. You need to be reminded, look, the Lord gave you special gifts. He's actually made you unique and indispensable to the body, and you need to be reminded he's placed you here for a purpose. Now, depending on which category you fall in, listen to that section and ignore the other one. (laughs) Think of yourself with sober judgment. Look at the gifts that you've been given and be reminded, look, we're all given into the same body and we all have our own special tasks. Now, why am I talking about this at the end of the year in this one-off series? Why am I? Well, you've kind of figured out, hopefully, if you've been listening for the last couple of weeks, taking this gap between series to talk about, okay, kind of nature of Christ Ridge. As a pastor looking at the congregation, looking at where we're at as a church and where we're likely to be headed, what are we talking about? We've talked about rejoicing in God. We've talked about the danger of drifting away, haven't we? We've talked about a, very, a variety of things, giving gratitude, the victory of Jesus, and being thankful to who He is. But here, to be reminded that Christians are called to work. I just lost you right there. That was it. Like, <laughs> I love that this stirring challenge to work hard follows the greatest explanation of the gospel in the scriptures and how intimately they're connected. If you believe the gospel and you are a person of God, man, woman, boy, or girl, does not matter, you are called to serve. Now, if you don't know God first, if you don't know Jesus, if you're not a Christian, that's actually problem number one we need to get addressed. Talk to me afterwards, that's great, we'll do that. But you need to work. And you need to work in two ways according to this passage. First is you need to work first and foremost to fight for your brain. You want to make the elders' jobs easier in this church? You want to make your relationship with them more delightful. You want to make my job even better than it already is, which would be hard to even think about. Fight for your mind. 
fight hard against the devil. Because interestingly, how is he described? He's what? The father of lies. Interestingly, what power does li- do lies actually have? Where, where does their power reside? It's in the mind. He's fighting for your mind just as much as we're called to be fighting on the other side. Fight for your brain. Please start consuming good stuff. Have good thoughts rattling around in there. Read good books. Read your Bible. Spend time in prayer. Please fight for your brain. And after you've started fighting for your brain, and that is absolutely first and foremost, then... Let's figure out how to use your gifts in the church. Everybody's been given them. We have that in the passage here. Everyone's been given different gifts according to God's design and delight. Then let's figure out how to use them. At a minimum, I would ask that you pray for the church. Pray that the Lord protects us. Pray that in Christian humility we delight in Him. Pray for my preaching that it gets better. Pray for the elders that they would be wise. Pray for the deacons that they would be wise servants. Pray for the church. I think it's interesting that that's where he starts is using your gifts. And at minimum, we all can do that, can't we? Now, for some, that's going to look differently even more so, not just praying, but then doing things behind the scenes, some giving, some teaching, some exhorting, some serving, some making things happen, because I don't have that gift. Figuring out how to use what God has individually given you in the church. And you see how this is a good closing sermon to this kind of series of, okay, what does Christ Ridge need to be thinking about? Well, we need you to be thinking about how am I going to serve in the church? And notice I even talked about two aspects to that service. One is your gifting and the other is the need. So that when the Christian Ed Committee starts asking for Sunday school teachers, when we know that's going to happen... a little bit faster to volunteer. So that when you send an email out saying, all right, we need somebody to help serve in this way, that it's not pulling teeth, that God's body would be built up and knit together. Why? Because this is the outworking of the will of God, that the body be knit together. Now notice, I, I ordered this properly though. This type of body can only exist in light of the salvation that God has given If we ever try to reverse those two things, it will be catastrophic. Trust in Christ Jesus. Fight for your mind. Serve the Lord with the various gifts that he's been given given to us. And we will do well as a body. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your church. We do ask for uh, your forgiveness. For the times in which we have intentionally chosen to conform to the world, not to be transformed by the Spirit. Forgive us for not feeding our minds a good content, a good diet, but instead feeding it the rotten evil of the world constantly. Forgive us for our silly excuses for not serving. And forgive us for not praying for the church. We know that you've told us that prayer is powerful. You love to answer it and you use it. And we love this church, yet interestingly, we don't pray for her enough. Please forgive us. For Christ's sake, amen.